0: Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have lain him. but folded up in a place by itself then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes
1: a reading from the gospel according to John chapter 20 verses 11 to 18 but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet then said to her they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to them they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have lain him having said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing but did not know that it was Jesus and Jesus said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her.
2: the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord.
3: Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we turn to his word. Father in heaven, again, we thank you that we're able to be here, that you have brought us into this place as your people, united in Christ Jesus, one in the spirit. And Lord, we pray that as we turn now to your word, that you would speak to us, and that, Father, you would give us minds to understand and hearts to receive, and the will to put into practice, Lord, all that you say to us Through your word and spirit this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So on Thursday evening, some of us were here and we were considering together the passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, that talks about what happened after Jesus came into Jerusalem on that day of the so-called triumphal entry. And we talked a little bit. There's, There's a little bit of material for what happened that day, and then it just moves very quickly into the upper room. And the rest of the Gospel of John basically covers just those hours between the time that Jesus and his disciples met together to observe the Passover and the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we have a whole lot of chapters in between where we were on Thursday and where we are this morning. And we're going to go back and look at those in some more detail in the weeks between now and Pentecost. But I want you to think back to that room where the disciples had gathered with Jesus and the Passover was being observed. In the course of that meal, at some point, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, he said, one of you is going to betray me. They didn't know who it was, and we talked about that on the evening of Uh, Monday, Thursday, that there was this sense among the uh, disciples, is it I, Lord? They didn't look immediately at the guy they thought to be the most likely one to betray. They all were asking, questioning themselves, and that raises some trouble. He passed a morsel of bread to Judas then and said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly, And at that point, immediately after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas went out, but he continued, Jesus, to speak to the others. He said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, repeating the idea that he had first raised on Palm Sunday, when he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And then he prayed later Father, glorify your name. And God said, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. We were talking about this last Sunday, or two Sundays back, I guess it would be, where um, God spoke from heaven, and then Jesus expounded that word. He said, now the Son of God is glorified. Now the Prince of this world is judged. Now when I am raised up. And he continues in that theme here in the upper room. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we often have made much of those final couple of sentences. A new commandment, I give you. Love one another just as I have loved you. By this all people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. But, That's that's actually where we get the term mondi and Mondi Thursday. It comes from the Latin word mandatum, and that was the command, a new command. That's, That's why we call it by that name. But it's interesting that what stood out to Peter on that day was not this new command or even the promise that by this all people will know that you love me. What stood out to him was the phrase that came immediately before, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That's what stuck in Peter's mind. So as soon as Jesus had finished giving the new commandment, Peter turned to him and said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And that would have been troubling in itself. They had followed Jesus for about three years at this point. They had followed him back up to Judea and Jerusalem into a situation where they were relative, relatively certain that there was trouble, and possibly life and death kind of trouble. And now Jesus is saying, well, I'm going to go somewhere, and where I'm going, you cannot come now. You, you'll follow later on, but certainly that would have been troubling. It would have been troubling even if it were not followed by the assurance that Jesus gave to Peter, in sort of a backward sense. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So think of the trouble in that room in chapter 12 and chapter 13. One of you will betray me. What does that mean? They didn't understand. Where I am going, you cannot come. They didn't get that part either. And then finally, directly to Simon Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And knowing that this would be disturbing to his disciples, Jesus immediately spoke to comfort them. Don't put a break. Between chapter 13 and chapter 14, it's not there. The words that are spoken in chapter 14, it's not a new discourse. They are the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in this context of the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed. So he has washed their feet. He has served the Passover to them. Judas has now gone off to find the Pharisees and the chief priests and to take his money and lead them to where Jesus will be later in the evening. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus turns to the other 11. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The word that's translated believe there could reasonably be translated trust. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In spite of everything that you've seen sort of developing, coming to a boiling point in Jerusalem in this last week, and in spite of the things that I just told you, trust me and trust my Father. Now, if they had been inclined to argue... They might have said, well, Jesus, if our hearts are troubled, it's because you just spent the last half hour troubling them by telling us all of these troubling things that are about to happen. We're not letting our hearts be troubled. They're just troubled. Don't deny our feelings, we might say these days. And maybe sometimes we feel kind of the same. We live in a world where there's just Violence. Every time you turn on the television or the internet or you listen to the radio or whatever means you take your news in, there's violence. We've had a couple of mass shootings down in the States just in the last few days. We live in a world that has been rocked by this pandemic. This is the, the first time we've been able to, to actually come together in the way that we have this morning since that COVID business began in early March of 2020. We live in a world under threat of war. We have Russian forces that have invaded Ukraine, and every time you listen to the news, somebody is saying, but these people have nukes. Think of what could happen. And there's all of this trouble. And every now and then we turn on the radio, or maybe we're walking through the grocery store Or if you're like me, you work together with a colleague who likes to torment you from time to time, who turns on that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. As if, right? But Jesus wasn't saying, Don't worry, just be happy, ignore all these things that are going on around you, just pretend they're not going on at all and just be happy. Live in denial. That's not his point. He's not saying, don't worry, be happy over against the vague angst of the current culture. He's speaking to men who would eventually follow him all the way to death. All of these 11, as far as we know, would lay down their lives for them, for him. And he gave them And through them, he gives to us the antidote for anxiety, the cure for worry. Whether it's worry about life or anxiety about death, he just provides us with the antidote. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, how are you going to be able to do that? Well, trust in God. Trust also in me. If the Lord is willing, we're going to come back to chapter 14 next Sunday, but the bookend to this teaching is found in verses 25 to 27. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he went on, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now remember, he's saying that to people who in the next 24 hours will watch him die at a cross. He's saying that to people who within the next, say, 35, 40 years will all be martyred for their faith in Christ. He's not saying, I'm promising you peaceful happy, lovely lives. You're going to go out from this place and you're going to raise happy families of children who grow up and become doctors and lawyers or whatever else their Jewish mothers want them to be. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, as he did on another occasion, in this world you will have trouble. But peace is my legacy to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he repeats it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. As I've already said just a short time after, he said these words, the worst case scenario in the minds of the eleven anyway, came to pass. After chapter 14, Jesus says, Arise, let's go. They go out to the garden. There he is confronted by his betrayer, and he is arrested. The disciples, the eleven, to the last man would flee on that occasion. We noted on Monday Thursday that Jesus was speaking specifically of Judas when he said, one of you would betray me. But looking at it from another sense, you could make the argument, all of them betrayed him. All 11 ran for their lives when the soldiers of the Sanhedrin came to take him away in the garden. One of them was so concerned to get away that when they caught him by the cloak, he left his cloak in the hand of the man who tried to catch him, and he ran away naked. That's how scared they were. And Peter, of course, would deny him three times. And that's all before the Roman governor ordered him flogged to within an inch of his life, executed on a cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. Even those who knew him best, these 11 who were with him that night, because they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, were convinced when they saw that stone rolled in front of the tomb that everything that they had just invested the last three or four years of their lives in was over. They were still convinced of that when Mary Magdalene came with the news in John 20, verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Well, the eleven had heard Jesus say on several occasions, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the elders and put to death, and on the third day he will rise. No doubt if Mary wasn't actually present on one of those occasions when he said that, she would have heard about it. Well, here it is, the third day. And she goes to the tomb, and she finds the stone rolled away, and she looks inside, and it's empty, and she's not shouting, hallelujah, hallelujah, Christ is risen. She runs back to this place where the disciples are cowering in fear, and the report that she brings originally is, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. The Sanhedrin was concerned that the disciples were going to come and steal the body of Jesus. Evidently, the disciples were also concerned that maybe the Romans or the Jews were going to come and steal the body of Jesus. Talk about troubled hearts. Now they don't know what's going on. Jesus' body is gone from the tomb. What are they supposed to do about it? And it probably didn't get much better when she returned with the news, I have seen the Lord. What does that mean? a vision? You mean you saw him the way Abraham saw God when those three men came? What are you talking about? And so evening of that day finds them still gathered behind locked doors. We don't know exactly where they were. The passage said that the disciples returned to their homes. But by evening they are gathered somewhere together, all of them except for Thomas, and the doors are locked according to John, for fear of the Jews. So this isn't like you know, Easter morning, the stone has been rolled away, and all of a sudden the followers of Jesus know what's going on, and they are parading through the streets of Jerusalem, waving palm branches again and saying, He is risen. It's not how it happened. By evening they are still locked behind closed doors for fear of the Jews when Jesus came to them and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And remember that's what he had said in chapter 14 too. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We could paraphrase. Don't worry, guys. Even if the worst actually happens. Imagine the worst case scenario and then imagine something worse than that. And even if that's what happens, I've got you. Trust me. I've always had you and I always will. And then the worst happened. They had watched him die. They had seen him sealed into a tomb. All of a sudden, here he is holding out his hands and showing them the nail prints and the wound in his side. And now they're troubled in a different way. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then when he had said this, he gave them, and this is important, He gave them the only source of true peace that has ever existed in this fallen, troubled world. Verse 22, He breathed on them, we are told. As once before, He had breathed into the newly formed Adam. And on this occasion, He said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And as the man in the garden became a living soul in that moment long ago, here, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he breathes on his followers again and he imparts to them life and faith and peace through the Holy Spirit who would abide with and be in his people forever. In Genesis, we have that primal creation, where God forms a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Here in the Gospel of John, we have the new creation that Paul talked about. Remember, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's not even there. He is a new creation. Just new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come, and this is how that works. He breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You were men of the earth, men of Adam. Now you are my people, born again to life in Christ. And part of the bequest that comes with that is true peace. So how are we to achieve this peace, which seems so elusive in our very, very troubled world. Well, we don't. We don't achieve peace. It doesn't come from something that we can do. It doesn't come from the world, and it cannot be found there. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The world gives us moments of peace. Peace. When the weather gets a little bit warmer, drive up into the mountains, find yourself a nice meadow full of wildflowers and just sit down and you'll probably have some peace for a little while. And that'll be taken away the first time your cell phone jingles to tell you that something horrible is going on somewhere else in the world. The world gives and the world takes away. But we cannot achieve peace then We simply receive it. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of God's grace. Jesus, having risen from the dead, comes to his disciples and shows himself to them, but he knows that they need more than just this vision of the risen Christ. They need to be empowered. They need to be equipped. He said to them, As the Father sent me into the world, I am sending you. Well, that's a big task. And so he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And as part of all of that, peace. You can have peace about the size of the task. You can have peace about the outcome. You can have peace about all the troubles that you're going to go through between here and there. Because I've got you. Just trust me on this. Eight days later, Jesus returned. And this time, Thomas, who was not in the room, On that first occasion was there this is the Thomas called the twin elsewhere in John who said unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side I will never believe Thomas was an empiricist he was gonna follow the science on this stuff and Jesus words when he appeared this second time were the same as on the first occasion at the end of verse 26 he said, Peace be with you. And then, in a stunning display of his amazing grace and love, he turned to Thomas and he said, Okay, put your finger here. See my hands. And take your hand and put it into that spear wound in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And apparently, without actually doing either of those things, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. There are groups of people out there who want to say that this is not an affirmation of the deity of Christ that Thomas was actually kind of cursing. He's so surprised <laughs> when he sees Jesus' wounds. He goes, my Lord, my God. It's not what this is at all. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. This is Thomas' profession of faith. He saw Jesus standing there before him and he could do no other. He confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. My Lord and my God. And he believed in his heart that God had raised him from the dead and Thomas was saved. He had been lost, but now he was found. He had been blind, but now by the grace of Christ he could see. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed pronouncing a blessing on everyone else, all of us who have come to him through faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed, because this is the point and the purpose, as I have said so many times in this series. It's the point of this sermon. It's the point of this book. It's the point of our study of this chapter this morning, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. John records eight of them. The eighth and final sign being the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is the ultimate sign that has ever been given. John acknowledges Jesus did lots of others, which are not written in this book. In another place, John says, if they had been written, the the world itself couldn't contain all the books that would be required to hold everything that Jesus did He did a lot that's not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the point of the entire gospel. It was the point of Jesus' encounter with Thomas. It was the reason he offered his hands and his side to this doubter. So that they might believe, and by believing have life in his name. And it's the reason why John wrote it down for us. So that we could read these things, and we could believe, and then believing, have life in his name. And this life in his name that Jesus is talking about is nothing less than eternal salvation. It's the abundant life that he mentioned earlier in John. No matter what we're going through, if we have the Holy Spirit within us and we have Christ within us through the Holy Spirit, our lives are filled with abundance of blessing and grace. It's eternal life. It's what we confess every time we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and in the life everlasting. It's all of that and it's the only way to true peace. Because with everything that happens in the world around us, everything that happens in our lives, the way the world gives and the world takes peace, the only way that we can have a peace that will abide through all of that is to have the absolute certainty that we can trust in God and we can trust in Christ. This is the only way, it's not a way. It's not one on the whole buffet of various spiritualities that we might choose, and maybe because it's my job, I'm going to encourage this one over all of the others. It is the only way. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The definite article is there. It's repeated. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, or possibly John, we're not sure who was talking, in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 said it again. And there is no salvation in no one else, only in Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 10, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Thomas is possibly the best illustration of that anywhere in Scripture. He says, unless I see the nail prints and put my finger into them and push my hand into the hole in his side, I will never believe Which, of course, was like saying, I will never be saved. But when confronted with the risen Christ, standing there in his presence, he did not disbelieve, but believed. He believed in his heart that God had raised Jesus from the dead, and he confessed with his mouth, My Lord and my God. And this is the call of the gospel to all who will hear These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we pray. Father, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us. And Lord, as we hear your holy word testify to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, help us to believe, to fasten our hope firmly in your promises to trust in him and to trust in you, not letting our hearts be troubled, but rather, Father, going out in the world as ministers of his peace. Father, we pray that you would just grant us the faith to trust you for salvation, and then, Lord, the faith to trust you to equip us and empower us for the task that you have given. And whatever the troubles that might be going on in the world around us may be, we would look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and run with patience that race that you have set before us. Lord, be glorified. Father, glorify your name in your people this morning and every morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.